This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Modern parenting presents fresh challenges, including unrelenting time pressures, lack of support systems, and work demands that often leave parents drained and worn out. It shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, then, that about 14% of new mothers and 10% of new dads have postpartum depression, or that about one in five mothers and dads have anxiety. Studies over the last 13 years that were conducted by the Gottman Institute suggest that between 40 and 70% of couples experience stress, profound conflict, and drops in marital satisfaction after having a baby together. That is some pretty grim stuff. The good news is that my guest for this part of today's show has developed techniques that help parents not only cope, but also feel joy in their parenting and their relationships with their partners. She draws from the latest research about child development, attachment, successful marriages, and mindfulness to create effective, doable solutions for balancing, simplifying, and communicating that you'll be able to use to de-stress, stay energized, and create more warmth and passion with your loved ones. I'm Armin Braun. We'll start talking about how you can incorporate more joy into your parenting when our show continues right after this. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. (laughs) They can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. I'm in almost every school bus in classroom. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Aaron Leba, who's the author of Joy Fixes for Weary Parents, 101 Quick Research-Based Ideas for Overcoming Stress and Building a Life You Love. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What is it that's making parents so weary these days? I think it's it's a combination of factors. One is that I think parents have a lot less community than they once did. Some some parents, you know, are feeling incredibly lonely and not getting a lot of support from, um, you know, from extended family or, or other other people or or friends. And parents are so busy, you know, keeping all the balls in the air, serving healthy dinners, and working and taking care of their kids that there's just not a lot of time left over for for them. Do you think that that's really that much different than it was generations ago? I mean, we're just different in different ways? I mean, busy in different ways? Or is there yeah. a really concrete number of hours that are different? I think, you know, part of part of the weariness that, some, that really all parents feel is, you know, it's 
it's been around for a long time. <laughs> it's part of, you know, kind of the more mundane tasks of parenting, like, you know, doing, you know, what doing three loads of dishes a day or 10 loads of laundry or, you know, those kinds of things. So I think, you know, um, in that sense, you know, there's always been, you know, difficult kind of part, parts of, of parenting that parents have had to kind of get their head around and really be able to tune in and focus on those moments of joy in family life, um, those real moments of connection and playfulness and laughter with their kids. But um, so in that sense, I, th- I think there's there's always been that. But I do think there is, a, you know, a stress these days that maybe what, you know, is new that that wasn't felt before, just kind of the speed of life increasing and kind of, you know, everyone, you know, most Americans always feel rushed. Yeah, yeah. And how are you defining the word joy? I mean, it's it's a word you think, oh, everybody knows what that means, but not necessarily. What what do you mean by joy? Yeah, by joy, I mean kind of a not not uh, just straight up happiness, kind of like that lighthearted feeling that you get. Sometimes I don't think anybody could be happy all the time. But when I when I talk about joy, I'm talking more about uh, deep down satisfaction, kind of connection with other people, and um, enjoyment of of your life, kind of connection to loved ones, and just you know, it's kind of like the the thing that can be there along the ups and downs. Um, not saying that you know every day is going to be a cheer, a cheery peppy day or whatever, but just it's it's more of a, a deeper sense of peace about your life. So is it more contentedness? So yeah, you, I would you say don't have con- to be you don't have to be happy, as you said. You can be satisfied and feel content. Yeah, and and feel content and kind of like. A deep down sense that 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 everything is is good, even if you have a bad day or you know a bad moment. That you know things are overall really really great in your life. And I think also about joy, it's it's about connection, kind of feeling really connected to you know your family, your friends, your kids, um, and the you know your loved ones. Yeah. All right. So I'm uh, part of the reason I was asking you about your definition of joy is because I, I was very surprised when, when I first started reading the book that the very first thing, the very first fix for weary parents is grieve your former life, which seems so sad in a way to juxtapose that against the, the joy and, and although we're not saying happiness, but the contentedness. What is it that you're grieving exactly? Yeah, I think by, you know, really if parents can take time to kind of look at some of the the things that they've lost, it actually does free up a lot more space and depth for them to experience more joy in their lives with their kids. So if they spend that time kind of getting curious about those feelings they have of sadness or of anger or frustration, you know, maybe they used to go go for a run or be part of a volleyball team or, you know, go to concerts or hang out with their friends, and I think when kids, people have kids, their lives look so different, and it's something we often don't talk about, um, that, you know, their lives just change in so many ways, their partnerships, their friendships, what they do at their free time. And I think if parents can really spend a little time just honoring and expressing their feelings around that, then it actually frees them up to be even more present with their kids and enjoy their kids. Yeah, and, and you emphasize subtly throughout the throughout the book that this process of becoming more contented and by 
hopefully the extension of that is to become a more contented and better parent, that it really starts with taking care of yourself, that, that there's a, a lot of, of, of these lessons are about taking care of yourself and building a fortress around your passions or creating rituals around your priorities and uh, following your own enthusiasm, just to, to name a few. How, how did that come about? I mean, it's, it's such, uh, in, in a way, a contrary way of looking at parenting. I think so many people look at parenting and put, put the kids first and everything we do, we do for the kids and is this for the best interest of the kids. But if you think about it, you really you know, sort of think about the flight attendants. You know, you can't, if you can't breathe, you can't help anybody else, which is why you put on your mask first before you help the other people with you, right? Yeah, and then, yeah, or that quote that says you can't pour from an empty cup. Like if if your cup is full, you have just so much energy to give your your kids. If you're able to kind of get that self care, you know, feed your feed your passions, take time time for yourself and your relationships, then you can feel so much more energetic when it comes to you know showing up for your kids. Um, yeah, I think of it like a, like a swimming pool. Like also when you're really joyful and you can stay kind of rooted or grounded in your joy by by really taking great care of yourself, then it's like your kids are splashing in a pool of joy. But when you're stressed and kind of doing everything out of sacrifice and have any kind of resentment or regret from, you know, the way you're leading your life, then I think they it's like they're splashing in that pool of stress instead. You know what I wonder about this and some things that you talk a lot about mindfulness as, as being part of this. Isn't there a point where you need to make a change? You can't just be mindful and just say, oh, yeah, OK, let's just absorb that and, and move on. I mean, because you, you, you have one of the chapters about avoiding victimhood. So you're you're recognizing that, that you it's it goes beyond just being aware of that you can actually make change. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, some of the tools, you know, for our mind is the, the intentions that we set or kind of the tone that we set or the things that we set ourselves up to look for in our minds, like the the awesome moments in each day if we've got our eye out for, like, what we're thankful for, the really mo- the moments of grace in a day or the moments of love in a day, then that's that's something we, we do with our mind that we set set ourselves up to look for those things. But I think you're right, sometimes we need more of an action-oriented thing to kind of, you know, clear out this stuff that's not working, that's kind of dragging us down, and or to make changes that will make us happy, whether it's, you know, changing a work schedule or a child care situation or, you know, um, anything that's, you know, that's just not, not working or kind of stressing us out to really look for those um, things that are weighing us down and do something about them. No, the subtitle of the book includes the phrase research-based. And um, what is, what's the research on this that shows that taking care of yourself makes you more joyful or that it helps anything? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's emotional contagion research that says, you know, people pick up on each other's moods in a matter of milliseconds. And this is especially true for parents and kids. So if you're kind of always stressed or always rushed or you know, feeling kind of down or just distracted, then I think kids pick up on that. And there's a lot of research about that. And then there's, um, you know, research that talks about the first 
first few years of a child's life just being very important, those warm relationships that you can develop. So I think if parents are feeling, you know, joyful, then they're they're more able to kind of show up with their kids and and be be playful to take that extra 10 minutes after work and go out and play catch with them or to play that extra game of peekaboo or to, you know, get down on the floor with them for 20 minutes and kind of let them take the lead and play what they want to play or help them build a fort out of blankets. You know, those little, those little extra steps of connection, I feel like, are so much easier when, when you're in a good place emotionally yourself. Erin Leba is the author of Joy Fixes for Weary Parents, 101 Research-Based Ideas for Overcoming Stress and Building a Life You Love. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Erin about uh, a lot more of those 101 ideas. I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Erin Leba, who's the author of Joy Fixes for Weary Parents, 101 Crick Research-Based Ideas for Overcoming Stress and Building a Life You Love. I um, want to talk a little bit more, actually, speaking of research-based things, we were just talking a couple seconds ago about gratitude. There's, there is a lot of research now that's coming out about gratitude and the importance of doing it and how to do it. Can you talk about that as a general theme? Yeah, that there's research that says that gratitude, you know, Im- improves your mood, your energy level, your heart, your health. Um, there, it's just incredible, um, you know, the effect that just taking a few moments and, you know, looking at what you're thankful for, writing that down or talking about that with, like, say, you talk about that with a partner at the end of the day, just, you know, those those bright spots in your day or the good stuff that's happening. Um, it just It just makes a a difference on so many levels. Um, yeah. How do you do that, though? Uh, can you be a little more specific than that? I mean, is, is it does it need to be done every day? Does it need to be done in a particular format? That are are there any specific ways of phrasing things or types of gratitude that are are better that produce better results? Yeah, I think I think. You know, there's gratitude as a mindset, just looking at your life and and realizing the things that you're thankful for, even, you know, starting small and really just drawing your attention to the things you're thankful for. But then there's also the behavior of gratitude, which is kind of like saying thank you to your partner for the little things, whether it's like taking out the trash or, 
you know, thanks for waking up with that, our baby last night and really, you know, putting gratitude into action. Um, thanking a grandparent for babysitting, you know, adding a lot of details, as many details as you can, or adding some creativity, whether you, you know, come up with a wrap for somebody or you, you know, send them, you know, a, a small token in the mail or, or a card um, or, you know, coming up with a gratitude song for them, like whatever whatever it is. It could be like a little post-it note. Um, you know, one, one husband thanked his wife for doing the laundry by putting two tickets to her favorite concert on, on the washing machine on a post-it note. So things like that. I think when you when you feel grateful for things in your life and you kind of take that time to write in a gratitude journal or in a gratitude app, you know, on your phone or something, um, or write in a joy journal, you know, just on your kitchen table, just good things that happen, whether, you know, Joey shared his cheese with, with Susie or your kid said something funny or, you know, um, anytime you really are able to pause on those positives and just take that step to like draw your attention toward those positives and either write about it, read about it, tell somebody about it. Um, it can just really change your whole mindset. And then it, it trains your mind to kind of look for those things in your day and, and actually create those positive moments as well. Do you have any sense about why it works? It seems so odd that it would be successful in, in anything. That why gratitude works? Yeah, I mean, it, I can understand how it would work to help somebody else. If you're, if you're saying thankful, uh, saying thank you to somebody, then the person who's on the receiving end of that, you could say, okay, they're going to feel better, they're going to feel appreciated and loved and understood. But the person who's saying it, that's, that's where I, I'm just curious about it. I'm not saying it's not true, obviously. But do you have, uh, in, in the research that you've looked at, have you find, found anybody who's tried to look at why it works? Um. I'm not, like, you know, Martin Seligman, he's a vet study that looked at, you know, people who who sent a thank you card to somebody who's never been thanked before and hand, and delivered it to them, that their own happiness in, increased for the next three months, wow. <laughs> that they felt better about themselves. So it is, it is powerful, like, and the only thing I, you know, I can think is that it really helps, helps you feel connected in your relationships. And also that sense of kindness that you're that you're doing kind things for other people, and that that gives you a boost yourself. Right. I guess you can say to yourself, "I'm I'm a nice person. I do good things," and that's yeah. I mean, it's it just somebody who looks at a lot of research and data. I, I just am always trying to figure out if there's some concrete way of quantifying these things instead of just qualifying them, but. The answers are not always that clear, and it and in a way, it doesn't matter if it works. You know, who cares why? But it's always nice to know. Um, you know, f about halfway through the book, you start, or a little bit more than halfway, you start really talking about things to do to build joyful relationship with with your kids. And what are the the most important ones? Do you think the parents should should really be focusing on when when thinking about building a joyful relationship? I think it's um, it's really important to focus on play and, you know, really those moments of connection with kids, whether it's through touch, like putting your hand on their shoulder or snuggling them while you're reading a book or, um, you know, giving them a hug in the morning and saying something positive when they walk down the stairs. So really 
um, those, those moments of, of connection through touch or the moments of connection through play, through kind of goofing off together or being silly, you know, play wrestling, playing hide-and-seek, um, having crazy dance parties, because that, that's a time parents and kids are really just enjoying each other and, and their relationship just grows in leaps and bounds when they're having fun together. Um, and I think a lot of times parenting can get really serious. It can be, you know, about learning your sight words or mm-hmm. your numbers and letters and, you know, potty training. And a lot of it can get kind of bogged down by the seriousness. And I think it's really important to keep those moments of, of playfulness and, la- and laughter. Um, I think another thing is just to um, spend speci- special one-on-one time with your child, whether it's you know, you're taking them to the grocery store and really being present with them. And, you know, um, maybe you're picking out, you know, your the dad's favorite salami or the mom's favorite watermelon and saying, like, what, what great thing can we buy at this grocery store for our family? Or you can give them a checklist and have them check things off. Or you can just, you know, enjoy them as, as you're shopping together. So it might just be something you're doing anyway, or it might be, you know, that you go to a baseball game together or, mm-hmm. you know, go for a bike ride together, things like that. It seems in a lot of ways that that's really a hard thing to do is to get in touch with just the, the freedom to play or the, the the lack of pressure because I think so many parents put pressure on themselves. You have to do something with the kids and you have to do – it has to have a purpose and you have to be moving, learning something or, you know, and, and a lot of parents feel worried if they don't know what to do. So this idea of of just having fun, in in a way, can cause people some stress. Yeah, no, and I th- I think that's a good reminder that it doesn't have to be some big fun thing. It could just be um, kind of checking yourself and noticing kind of what space you're in. If you're in a really serious, get everything done, you know, check all the boxes, like we did bath, we did books, we did, you know, or if you're in a, mo- a more of a space of of being really present and kind of, you know, I don't know, look, having those spontaneous moments of connection, not let necessarily that you're doing something like amazing with your kid, you know, but just that you're in that space to have a little bit more lightheartedness with them or, you know, just that connection or see where, you know, see where a book takes you and into a discussion or, or giggling or, you know, just, just being in that mindset. And even for the special time, I don't think it has to be, you know, some big Disney on ice, you know, performance or something like that. It could just be the little things like, I'm going to take my kid to the car wash with me and we're going to have fun together. We're going to do this job together and, you know, I'm going to enjoy them along the way. Now, we only have just a minute left and tell me your your favorite one of these. The one um, that you find yourself coming back to more often. I, I come back to the chapter on avoiding mood matching a lot when I just notice kind of the chaos, chaos starting um, or... <laughs> Like, if one of my children is upset or in a bad mood or just kind of sad about something or, you know, um, resisting something, that I don't necessarily get swept into their mood, but then I try to kind of um, hold my own mood steady and and just provide some space for their feelings without getting kind of swept in, into what they're going through. 
But do you, are you trying to gently steer them away from if the feelings, if they are not so terribly positive? No, I think I think it's just kind of like being able to let let their feelings be without reacting to them. I think it's just so easy when somebody is having a hard time with something that you know you react to things. I mean, and I think partners do it too. Couples do it all the time where sure. somebody's having a hard time and you just get swept into sort of being reactive to what they're going through or or some of the things they're saying when they're really just venting and kind of having a moment. So I, I think about, especially with toddlers, I mean, they, they just have a lot of big feelings and emotions, and it's like just being able to get a little bit of space and not get swept into kind of that reactivity with, with what they're going through. Erin Leba, and it's spelled L-E-Y-B-A, is the author of Joy Fixes for Weary Parents, 101 Quick Research-Based Ideas for Overcoming Stress and Building a Life You Love. Erin, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the US never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. And this one deals with tantrums, something that we've all, as parents, had to cope with. Dear Mr. Dad, my three-year-old throws tantrums all the time. When she does it at home, I can handle it, but when we're out in public and she goes nuts, I find it very hard to cope. I've tried timeouts, taking away treats, and pretty much everything else short of spanking, which I don't ever want to do. But she just keeps on resorting to tantrums as a way to get what she wants, and I have to admit that sometimes I give in just to get her to calm down. What can I do to get her to find other ways to express herself? The first thing to do is to stop giving in, ever. By caving to your daughter's blackmail, and that's exactly what it is, you've told her that if she keeps up the tantrum for long enough, you'll eventually pay up. But you're not going to do that anymore, right? So let's talk about some better approaches. One of the most effective ways of dealing with a tantrum is to ignore it. If you're at home, just turn around and walk out of the room. Not too far, though. You want to make sure your daughter's not going to be able to hurt herself or anything else. Without an audience, pitching a tantrum is a lot less effective. Naturally, this approach isn't going to work if your daughter has thrown herself down in the middle of the cookie aisle at the grocery store. In cases like that, pick her up and take her to the car, where she can scream to her heart's content while you stand outside checking your email on your phone, or at least pretending to. The point is for her to see that you're not paying attention to her. Ignoring tantrums is great, but wouldn't it be even better if you could keep them from happening at all? One way to do that is to keep track of the times and places your daughter does her tantrums. If she's tired or hungry, for example, taking her food shopping will have predictable results. Another tantrum avoidance technique is to talk with your daughter before you go out and make sure that she knows exactly what kind of behavior you're expecting. You might also want to offer a small incentive. 
If you behave nicely while we're out, I'll make your favorite dessert when we get home. This is different from a bribe, which is paid in advance. Praise your daughter's calm behavior a few times during your outing. Although they don't always act like it, kids really do want to please us. Perhaps the best tantrum-preventing idea came from Dr. Myrna Schur, who's the author of Thinking Parent, Thinking Child, and who was a guest on this show. It's what Schur calls the same-slash-different game, which goes like this. During a calm time, ask your daughter to pay attention to you while you do two things, such as clapping your hands and flapping your arms. Then ask, did I do the same thing or something different? Of course, she'll say different. Play the game for a few minutes every day and make it fun by incorporating some silliness, asking, for example, whether a goldfish and a dog are the same or different. The next time your daughter starts down a road you know ends in a tantrum, say, can you think of a different way to tell me what you want? Chances are that'll stop her in her tracks. This technique, which I know sounds perfectly simple, is part of Schur's I Can Problem Solve method which for more than 30 years has been shown to be extremely effective. Give it a try and let us know how it goes. And speaking of letting us know, you can do that through our website, mrdad.com, where you can let us know about questions or comments you might have or suggestions, or you can listen to past shows if you've missed anything. All of that, again, is mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go quite yet, because, as you know, there's a lot more of this existing Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's positive parenting show. I'm Armin Brat, founder of MrDad.com, and I want to thank you very much for sticking with us. It's great to have you. In the wake of Brexit and recent elections and other unusual world events, many of us feel weighed down by uncertainty. It's no surprise that the more interconnected our world becomes, the more immediately we feel the consequences of current events. But what you may not know is that while the brain hates uncertainty, it also holds the key to adapting to and even thriving in uncertain times. 
In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a world-renowned neuroscientist, an entrepreneur and two-time TED speaker who's going to draw on his two decades of research to tell us about some of the startling truths about the brain and how it perceives the world. We're also going to talk about the long-debated question about whether humans see reality or not. And the simple answer, according to our guest, is no, we don't. In fact, our brains didn't and couldn't have anyway evolved to see the world accurately. What we see is subjective, not objective. And everything that we see or do or think is filtered through our past experiences. Understanding all of this can help us to see differently, which can ultimately unlock our ability to create, innovate, and affect change in every aspect of our lives. I'm Armin Brott. We'll jump into all that and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. It may be hard to believe, but people just like you are already saving money. FeedThePig.org makes it easy. Their simple savings plan teaches you how to start saving without going overboard. So you don't need to sell all your belongings and live in a commune. These dungarees belong to all of us now, Tom. You don't need to get a second job as a stuntman. We need a new stuntman! You just need FeedThePig.org. Don't get left behind. Get tips and tools at FeedThePig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Bo Lotto, who's the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. Bo, thanks for joining us. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you. You know, I should I should point out that the the book itself from the very beginning is an exercise in seeing things differently. You open it up and expect to see the the cover or the flap text on a horizontal plane but it's on a, a vertical one it's uh, it's just interesting that you have to you have to kind of keep turning the book around to to read the text that's in it and there's a number of of elements inside the book where you have to turn things sideways and everything it's uh i, I imagine that that was all deliberate yeah, or it was just very bad printing one or the other yeah. um yes no it was indeed uh deliberate and in fact there is the the first motion illusion uh on a printed book uh as well um in a form of a flip book uh but yes the book is about seeing differently it's about perception so i'm a firm believer in tropes you are the thing that you talk about and so the book needed to be something that embodied the topic of perception in particular where perception comes from and and how and why we see differently you know, the whole idea of perception is something that that's it seems wildly philosophical in a way. And I think that, that you know, you start talking about is is what we are experiencing reality or is it only your perception of reality or is there such a thing as reality or, you know, are we somebody's dream or all of this stuff? How do you even begin to whittle all that stuff down so you can have a conversation about the topic of, of perception? Well, for me, one of the first places is to start is to remind people, including myself, actually, that everything begins with perception in, in some sense, that who we are, how we define ourselves, the colors we see, the clothes we wear, the people we fall in love with, to a large extent, all begins with perception. So to understand perception is really to understand what it is to be human. 
And so that's one of the very important places that I'd like to start with thinking about it. The other is to remind people that there is a physical world. Uh, this is not postmodern relativism. Uh, it's just that we don't see it. Or more importantly, we don't see it accurately. Uh, because everything we see is grounded in our history, and not just the history of our individual history, but our culture history, our evolutionary history, what evolution gives you is utility, not accuracy. So we evolved to see the way we did because it was useful to do so, which is not the same thing as seeing what's really there. Right. All right, can you, can you give us a little bit of a concrete example? Because you talk about that throughout the book, about how we don't see reality and our brains didn't even evolve to help us see reality. We're seeing something else. Take, make that a little more concrete for me. Yeah, we're seeing what proved useful to see in the past. Um, and the reason why that is necessarily true is for at least two reasons. First is that we have no physical access to the world itself other than through our senses. So we sense the electrical, electrical chemical energy of the world through light or vibration or the olfactants that come in through your nose. But these things conflate multiple aspects of the world. So, for instance, take light. Light can arise from an object that's large and far away or small and up close. Right? The light is exactly the same, but your brain has no way of knowing whether it is, in fact, a large object far away or a small object up close. And people can prove this to themselves by simply holding their, up their finger and lining it up to something that's far away and making it more or less the same size. Now, of course, they're not the same size. But as far as your retina is concerned, they are the same. But we don't see them as the same because it wasn't then useful to do so. So the only information your brain has to see, other than the data at the moment, is its history of what that data meant for behavior in the past. The second reason why we need to see the world in this way is because the world is constantly changing. To see the world accurately doesn't really help because... Even if we could, the world doesn't come with instructions. It doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us why this object is important or not important. What's more, it doesn't tell us that it might be important in this context, but not important in another. So your brain evolved to constantly adapt, which is why the most successful systems in nature, nature are the ones that are most adaptable. Right? Okay. So, yeah. So, in fact, the idea that we don't see reality is, in fact, incredibly freeing. What I mean by that is we don't see it in any way that's accurate. We see it's way it's useful. And pain is a perfect example. Pain does not, if we think about pain as a perception, there's nothing painful in the world. The world itself doesn't feel pain. It doesn't exist in the world. Sadness doesn't exist in the world. In the same way that color doesn't exist in the world. These are feelings, perceptions that we project onto the world. And the reason why I do so is because it was useful. But in that sense, it's not really accurate. Right? Okay, but I, I'm just wondering. I mean, it's a, I think it's a fascinating discussion, and I think it's, uh, you know, I, I spend some time thinking about this just if I'm, I don't even, my, my mind is wandering, and I'm wondering if I'm looking at somebody, if they see things exactly the way that I do, and I mean physically see them, I mean, you know, because you can never get into somebody's head or see things through their own retina. So, you know, I see something as a particular color. I'm calling that blue. Are they seeing blue? But if I were to see what they saw, would it, would they really be seeing red? But they're calling it blue. You know what I mean? Just this. Yeah, I know kind exactly of, what you mean. 
it, it, you can drive yourself crazy with that sort of stuff. But so how do you how do you make this a little bit more accessible when you can say, well, it makes us it makes us more free to be creative if we see if we understand that we're not seeing what's what we think we're seeing. What's there? Yeah. Uh, the way it helps us to be more creative is we can use the process of perception itself in order to create new perception. Because our brain is plastic, right? We can adapt our brain to new experiences. We can also have those experiences, the experiences that happen inside our head. We can imagine. And imagining, we actually change the functional structure of our brain, which enables us to see things that we couldn't see before. I mean, one of the most powerful reasons for why we are born, in a sense, too early, of course, it's to a large extent because the birth canal is, in a, is in a sense, too small for a larger head, but it also means that we come into the world with a very plastic brain that's able to adapt itself to the local environment, which is one of the reasons why humans have been able to inhabit such a diversity of niches that other animals can't, because we can change, we can adapt, and we adapt according to the, our local experience. Okay? So another example, of course, is language. Language is not a function of the world. It's completely arbitrary and made up by humans. If we weren't here, it wouldn't exist. But the consequences of having something like language is obvious. And the only reason we can have language is because we have a brain that creates perception in the way that it does. Yeah. Right? And through experience, what experience gives us, and this is really important, actually, especially when thinking about parents and thinking about education, and also thinking about what you were saying about being inside someone else's head, which is that, or rather, not being able to be inside someone else's head, including the head of your children. Exactly, right? yes. Which yeah. is that what experience gives you are assumptions and biases. And assumptions and biases determine, to a certain extent, what we're going to perceive, what we're going to do, how we're going to behave and think, given any particular stimulus, any particular situation. And so... These assumptions are essential for our survival. We have all kinds of assumptions where we take a step. Our brain assumes all kinds of things about the floor, about our legs. But these assumptions can also get in the way of seeing differently, which is why experience and the plasticity of the brain enables us to create new assumptions. But, of course, a lot of these assumptions we inherit. We inherit from our parents. We inherit from our culture. Right? And they become part of who we are. And so when we actually look at another person, we perceive another person, it's no different from when we're perceiving an object. And if we remember that objects are not colored, right? The coloring is part of our mind. So is true for another person. We project the color, we project the meaning onto another person because we have no access to what's inside their head. So every personality that you perceive is actually inside you projected outwards. Yeah. Right? yeah, And it's only through interaction you can better understand the why the person does something, right? Yeah, otherwise, exactly. Other than that, you're projecting it onto them. Right. Talking with Bo Lotto, who's the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about all sorts of things having to do with seeing things differently and hearing things differently. I'm Armin Brant, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. 
My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Bo Lotto, who's the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. And just before the break, you you mentioned language and how important that is. And I just had a a flash to one of my my favorite books. I think it was written sometime in the 30s, a guy named Stuart Chase called The Tyranny of Words. And he talks about things you know, the, a cat, we we think that we understand what a cat is, and it's a little easier. We can probably come to some general acceptance or generally agreed definition of a cat. But if you start thinking about words like freedom, you know, that doesn't mean the same to any two people probably. But we throw no. it around. We throw it around like we understand what it is. And, and you know, it's it's all the perception that you're talking about, that I perceive something to be freedom, but somebody else perceives it to be tyranny. And, uh, I mean, it's just, the whole thing is just wildly fascinating. But I, I want to have you to go into a little bit more about the the importance of uncertainty. And you mentioned to me just before we went on the air the, the issue of how we need to be certain in order to come to terms with being uncertain. But certainty is a flexible concept. So how do we, <laughs> how do we get there? Yeah, so the... the you could argue the fundamental problem that the brain evolved to solve, and not just our brain, any living brain evolved to solve, is the problem of uncertainty. During evolution, if you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. Your brain <laughs> evolved yeah. to take what is uncertain and make it certain, to take something that is meaningless and make it meaningful, because that enabled us to survive. Because to predict what's going to happen next was a huge, of course, selective advantage. To die is easy. It's staying alive that's hard. And in order to do so, we have to be able to deal with uncertainty, ambiguity. Right? And so we deal with ambiguity. Um, our brain evolved to deal with ambiguity so much that we it's a space that we actually tend to hate. And almost every behavior is an attempt to decrease uncertainty, to increase certainty. And you could argue this is why there's so much emphasis, for instance, in schools on, on answers, on efficiency, because questions are actually creating uncertainty. Right? And what's ironic is that the only place we can go, or one of the only places we can go if we're going to be creative and adapt and see differently, is to step into uncertainty, the very place that evolution has told us to avoid. So okay. a very deep question is, how do we actually enable people to step into uncertainty? And this is one of the most, possibly one of the most powerful things about parenting. You can't step into uncertainty unless you have a place of certainty from which to step. 
And this, you could argue, is one of the most powerful things about a loving relationship. That with my own three children, I would believe I'm a successful parent. Or one of the ways I would think about being a successful parent is that if I give them enough love and security that enables them to be able to ask questions, to take risks, to step into uncertainty. Because there's, they know there's a place that they can come back to. It's not to protect them from the world. Right. It's to create an environment that enables them to actually engage with the world, to take risks. Right? So you have and to you have actually, that, that feeling of safety. I mean, it's the same kind of a thing that happens when kids are, are six or seven months old. They, they crawl away a little bit. They look over their shoulder. They want to make sure you're still there. If you're there exactly. and, you, and you look happy, then, then they're fine to keep exploring. But if you look like, they're, like you're worried or something, then, then they may come crawling back because they're, exactly. they're going to be worried. And it's actually been measured. You know that invisible tether? that you have that that children have to you that what you were describing exactly that that they they step away from you well not step away they they fall and crawl and roll away from you right and they will only go a certain distance and they look behind you they see if you're still there yeah and they will tend to play at a certain radius and then that radius gets bigger and bigger and then when you come to my kids age of 18 the radius is all the other side of the world right but we know that when kids are feeling insecure that radius gets shorter and shorter the more confident and loved the kids feel, the further is that radius, right? In other words, that love enables them to step away from you because there's tremendous power in them exploring the world. Because in exploring the world, that's how your brain makes meaning. It doesn't make meaning by passively receiving information, by sitting in a classroom chair and being told facts. Your brain makes meaning by physically engaging with the real world and making meaning from it. And so the more security that we enable children to step into uncertainty, to, to take the risk and explore, the more likely they are, they are to be able to adapt in the future. Right. right. So and what is what is going on here then? I mean, you hear so much about kids, teenagers, young adults who are have kind of grown up in this system of answers and correct answers and focusing on grades and accomplishments, and they aren't really developing the skills of thinking and taking risks and making mistakes. And it's getting to be a very, very common topic of conversation these days about kids not learning how to fall down, I mean, literally or figuratively. So how do, how do we let go? I mean, in, in a way, we're giving them too much certainty. Uh, in a way, we're, it depends on how you think about certainty. I suppose you could argue, yes, in a way, we are giving too much certainty. Or rather, we're giving the wrong kind of certainty. Um, in fact, I would argue we're doing kind of the opposite. We're telling them that the world is a scary, dangerous place. When I see a child, that's, you know, just a tiny little child of a foot and a half tall, and they've got a big helmet on, and they're walking around on grass, the message to that child is that the world is dangerous and scary and uncertain. Right? But you can they count on learn. me. Yes. No. And so we, we protect them from that. But as soon as you put children into a context, that gives them the ability to take responsibility for themselves, you can often decrease the number of, of accidents that happen because they learn how to deal with the world, right? So we're actually the health and safety madness in some sense, you could argue. While we're, while we're reducing short-term risk, the braised knee, the cut lip, or a bruised shin, we're actually increasing long-term risk, which is the inability to adapt 
to the future. And if you think about the world that our kids are going to inhabit, because the world is becoming increasingly interconnected, it means we'll have increasingly um, what are called emergent attractor states that are unpredictable. The world is going to become increasingly unpredictable simply because it's increasingly interconnected, which means what we, the skills we really need to give children are the skills to adapt and the courage, not confidence, the courage to step into uncertainty. And I'd argue one of the most important disciplines or subjects in that context is actually science. Because science is all about playing, all about stepping into uncertainty, the excitement of not knowing. That's actually what defines science, not the scientific method. That's the craft of science. But true science is about asking a good question. We don't even teach children how to ask questions, much less what a good question is in school. We teach them how to be a sous chef, not a chef. Right? So, but asking the questions is part of it. And then you have to be unsatisfied in a way with a concrete answer. Yeah, you have to be excited, right? You have to be excited about not knowing. To not know is something in our society we actually frown upon. Right? Imagine, and there's tremendous cost to, to this. Uh, imagine if you think about the way we teach children and the way we engage in conflict in the world. If you and I are in conflict, the way I've been taught from society and from school and normal experience is that I need to prove that you're wrong and to try to shift you towards me. And you're trying to do exactly the opposite, prove that I'm wrong and to shift me towards you. Right? The situation is set up to win, but not to learn. And it's only in conflict that we can actually learn anything. To enter a situation that's different from what we expect is the situation where we have the possibility of crossing a boundary. But the problem is we enter conflict with certainty and, and answers. But what would happen if we entered conflict with a question, with listening, with empathy? Now you have a situation where you can actually learn. And in that kind of conflict, it's, there's actually a potential for a positive outcome, which is that you complexify your assumptions, you complexify your biases, which makes you a more adaptable person. And also goes a long way towards perpetuating the human race. Yeah. yeah. It increases okay. openness. It increases compassion between people and respect. Yeah. Bo Lotto, the author of Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently. It's a fascinating book besides being visually really interesting just to hold in your hands and flip through. There's wonderful information within it as well. Bo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.